I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, welcome to the second guest of season three of The Discomfort Practice. I am very honored to be here with somebody I've heard a lot about from our friend, our mutual friend, Tim Collings. So let me just introduce him. Ben Bowen is the CEO and co-founder of Shared Path Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Corporation, which is focused on helping Indigenous people start and build businesses. He's an Indigenous Australian whose ancestors were the original inhabitants of what's now known as Sydney's Inner West. Ben was raised to be proud of his family's background and deeply aware of the value of his culture and identity. And he brings a strong voice and energy as well as vast professional expertise and a compelling personal story to shared paths endeavors. We'll get into his personal story. But Ben has been a professional athlete and coach, a corporate coach and facilitator, a designer of innovative health and education programs. So his experience is really broad. Then this brings with it a broad perspective and insight into the barriers and enablers of the kind of sustainable change that's needed to create a planet and a society that works for everyone. Because obviously, we're going to talk a lot about his work on tech in particular and some of the embedded biases that those of us who are white and look like software developers and think like those people don't understand. So we're going to get into that. And he brings a really interesting expertise in the indigenous success model, which we'll talk about, which views change as an opportunity to reflect, inspire, and grow. And obviously, it doesn't need to be said that we've been going through such a huge time of collective change. that This is a model we need to know about, to reflect on, and to learn from. So Ben co-founded Shared Path to enable collaboration and business success and financial freedom for Indigenous people, basically having access to jobs and where the money is without having to leave their ancestral lands and where they actually want to live to move to cities and find jobs. So his experience of the world has flavored this. He's also played a leading role in Australia's Digital Custodians Program, which is supported by Microsoft and has done some really interesting work because Ben knows and sees the potential of tech as tools to help Indigenous people move toward greater self-determination. He's done a lot of work with Indigenous peoples around the world. And before we pressed record, I was talking about how it would be useful to talk about Indigenous peoples, because it's like when you talk about Africa, as if everyone who lives on in Africa is the same. And Indigenous peoples are so diverse and obviously come from all over the world. And where I'm from in Wyoming, we have two particular indigenous tribes, the Shoshone and the Arapaho, and they themselves are very different from each other. So I kind of grew up aware of this. But as I'm saying at the beginning of pretty much every episode in season three of The Discomfort Practice, we're having this conversation today because we are living in a world on fire, but also a world on the brink of some really beautiful innovations and reflections and ways of rediscovering old wisdom changing the way that we do things in a way that works for everybody. Because if we don't make that happen, we're all kind of headed over the cliff edge together. So I am so pleased to have you here. And I'm so excited about this conversation because it's going to take me to places that I don't know about and that I'm uncomfortable about. And that's the whole point. So welcome, Ben. Thank you. 
Well, let's dive in because we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to be talking a lot about sort of challenging our worldview as I'm just going to call myself as a white person and looking at bias in tech, but also the range of indigenous perspectives that you're familiar with, the range of indigenous peoples, but also the range of perspectives that you bring to tech that you're aware of can really add depth and value to a wider range of people. So I always start with the same first question, which is what is an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that drives who you are and what you do in the world? Well, thank you for the warm introduction. And I've been pondering this question for such a long time and I can't actually narrow it down to one, which is an interesting thing. And I've sort of thought standout moments and and I can, one of the big ones for me was my nan, who was really the anchor for me for culture when she passes, when I was only a young teenager, it was really hard. And I sort of found myself floundering a little bit. Um, But that one, that thread is sort of also throughout my life. So that's one really important one. But if I fast forward a little bit, it's um, been an athlete as a cyclist and a a triathlete. I was at the time, the only Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander athlete there and, and faced a fair bit of pushback and commentary and social commentary around my position and it really taught me a lot of what Nan had been telling me about growing up to be there by myself and that sort of came through and and that's what sort of driven me into this position we are now in in business and tech and education which our journeys are so different challenges are different and the way we're forced to stand on our own to do a lot of things is really difficult. And I mean that in the utmost respect to a lot of minority groups have that. And I, you know, the work we do now in business development, when we tell these stories, you can see a lot of women in the boardroom nodding their head, you know, and it's a shared experience. So that's the sort of stuff that brings it through. And and looking into the business world, a standout moment for us was we were standing in a remote community in Cape York, so the very top of Australia on the East Coast and remote community, only a couple of hundred people. You've got to get a light plane out there. You've got to get the kids out there on the airport strip to shoo the birds off to land and take off. And, you know, that sort of little community and the government was there with us and we're talking to them about education and the power and the government spokesperson stood up and sat there lecturing these kids going, you know, if you go to school, you'll get good marks and then you'll go off and get a job or university and then you'll buy your house and, you know, your life's really good. And and we're all just looking at each other and looking at the community going, you know, there's a hundred kids going to graduate school this year here. There's three jobs. There's a cashier at the local shop. There's one at the petrol station and there's probably one other working from someone else. So what happens to the other 97 kids? And then not only that, in those communities, government owns the housing. So there is no buying of housing there is nothing you can buy. So you can't buy land, you can't do anything. So if your dream of doing that sort of stuff really drags those kids outside the community, that if they have this message of success that you've got to buy things and own things and be that person, then they've got to leave their community to do it. And then not only that, it was the overlay of these kids were nothing without all that sort of stuff. And we were sort of sitting there with the community afterwards after the government left the room and just sat there going, this isn't right. Like we really need to look at that, that you guys have got businesses here. You've got opportunities here. What we need to do is link pathways that if elders and aunties and uncles and and mums and dads know 
what the businesses are or got a concept of it. Let's start tweaking the education system to get the kids to learn those skills or outsource those skills to help mum and dad or auntie and uncle. And then from there, you know, the world's the limit. We can start looking at this stuff. So we, we rapidly grew quite quickly from getting what we call the grey nomads, which is the, you know, the elderly white people who drive around caravans in Australia and, and don't spend a lot of money, but they seem to be everywhere. You know, getting them to pay, um, set up a tea and coffee stop where we actually got the people to stop and pay a dollar for a tea and coffee, which was easy for us. But then we actually got just a little cheap um, bread maker and started making bread. And then they sold that. And then someone who was an artist in town would then set up their art just around the corner. And then suddenly people were getting out of caravans. They were buying a tea and coffee. They were stretching their legs. And then suddenly there was an artist and then they might buy some art. Then all this round circular community came out that people are actually working together to build it. And we saw the model work. And that was what just, it was just the light bulb for us. We just went, this works. We know it. And it was, it was amazing just to watch the community just add bits and pieces on like no formal training, no, you know, scalability models and, you know, what sort of environmental surveys do we have to do around? It was just, let's get in down dirty and work together to make this happen. So th that's what we really saw happen. And it was amazing. It was amazing to watch. I love that, that it, <laughs> the government came in and we're like, here's the system, here's the path. This works for me. So of course it's going to work for you. And it was just completely irrelevant, but they knew what could work. And then just with a tiny little bit of resource, it sounds like they were given opportunities and dignity and recognized as said that they were lazy or, you know, these, these things that get heaped on people who don't have access to opportunity. You gave them opportunities. And I suppose from that, where did the name Shared Path come from? Was it from that recognition of it having a shared path? Look, on twofold on it, what was interesting too about the business model we built for that community was then the government actually came in and said, because you're earning money now, you can no longer live in social housing, which was the only housing in the community. So people had to rechange and we we ended up doing oh my a God. we ended up doing a bartering system where people could trade and do all this sort of stuff without the, and then yeah we got into a bit of trouble but it was worth it. Look, shared path is is interesting. The uncle of mine who we um, co-founded it with, Sean Apo, amazing brain in this sort of space and comes from a public health background and we were both working in public health at the time when we met. I'd just come from education and um, fell into health with him and and we sort of worked together for about five six years and. It was a really great time. Like we both had the same mindset that we, we were funded to stop people smoking in community, uh, make them eat healthy and just make better lifestyle choices. And we're sort of looking at it going, you know, you tell someone to stop smoking, they'll light up another cigarette or you tell someone to go for a run and they'll walk, you know, like that's all humans are like that. So we, we started looking at it going, you know what, there's no point catching people at a crisis here. We really need to look up the stream and see where people are coming from and start to do it. And we started implementing a whole bunch of programs. Like we were based in Redfern in Sydney in a, in a, a big Aboriginal community here. And it was one that I grew up around. And we had a gym attached to the place we're working. And with all the, obviously in, in the city, there was cafes and everything else. So there's all this talk about let's stop all the sugary food and junk food and ban them and all the cafes and then no one can access it then everyone will be healthy and we're like nah let's have a look at something else so we ended up putting lunch uh, breakfast on for anyone who would turn up for i think it was like a week to two weeks and it was like we offered bacon and egg rolls we offered banana bread like really sugary cake bread we offered 
all the things that community were after and would purchase. And we offered it free, but what we did is figured out the calorie burn off of those foods and said to them, right, if you want to run 6Ks on a treadmill or get on an exercise bike and do 30 minutes at this intensity, then we'll give you breakfast. That's what it earns. At Brilliant. The of, <laughs> at the end of two weeks, we ended up with all this food that people said that we wouldn't be able to get out of community. We had it all left over. No one was willing to do it. And it was all because people knew it wasn't great, but people didn't have the context of why it wasn't great. So, and by giving people that thing of, this is how much work you've got to do to burn this off and you're just consuming it really easy, then people went, oh, like that's. So that's where we started coming up with this model of going, we need to bring these two worlds together and not have them split and parallel that, you know, one doesn't offer anything to the other. And, and that's where Shared Path really came, that we, we were looking at a business model of going, we need community there, but for them to be successful in business, they can't operate on themselves. We also need them, the white Western system to actually support and invest and do a lot of that stuff too. So we ended up two arms of the business where consulting with white organizations to build their understanding and changing their risk analysis of our businesses and then building the capacity and, and the skills and the just the methods that a lot of community are doing and technology gives us that opportunity to do it quickly. So it's a shared path with everyone. What I like about that is that it isn't, it's not sort of saying one system is good and one is bad and, you know, fuck colonial oppression or whatever. It's actually about recognizing that there are parts of every system that work quite well and you need them and that you need to just make it work for different communities. I also loved that behavior change example of just letting people know, hey, it's not that we're going to be your grandma and tell you what you can't eat. <laughs> we're just going to let you know what you need to do to not get fat eating it, maybe? It's, look, those models are amazing. Like we, we did a spearfishing one, which was the same. Like we took some young guys out who were, you know, football, like almost professional or ex-professional football players. Like these guys were supposedly elite athletes at the time. I, I was past my elite status at this stage and we took them out spearfishing and put them in the water off the coast here and said, like, catch your lunch and, you know, this is what, because we we're talking about cultural protocols and how we do it. And these fellas were in the water for about three hours and came out blue, shivering, no food. And they're like, oh, what are we having for lunch? We're like, well, you didn't catch anything. Like, That's the thing, you know. Life's not meant to go to a supermarket and just stroll down the aisles and get everything you need. You actually need to burn off energy and be connected to your country. You need so that, And that's what we sort of talk about, that, you know, unfortunately for us in the city, we can no longer just go off and have that lifestyle. We actually have to engage in this system, and, and but we need to understand how to engage on our own terms as well. Wow, that is incredible experiential learning. <laughs> Spearfish till you're blue and then go home hungry. You get it now, right? Look, we, wow, we, ended, up, we ended up getting the munch. I wasn't that big, but yeah. First lesson learned and then you move on. Well, I guess this really brings me into something that I really want to talk about a lot this season. Just I'm curious and craving in my own learning process, which is so much indigenous wisdom exists that has been forgotten or ignored. And it's like your example of spearfishing, things that are all about culture and heritage and actually ways of life that are still very relevant. So I guess I would like to know, what are some of the ways in which you have helped people to, indigenous communities, but also the wider community to rediscover some indigenous wisdom and ways of living that actually are really, really relevant to us all today? This is an interesting thing for us because there's this concept of forgotten knowledge or lost knowledges that has to be revitalized in languages and stuff. And, and in our communities, 
to be honest, um, as a Radri man and, and, and links to, as you said, to Wongal and, and Gandagara down in Sydney, it doesn't take us too long to have conversations to find the right person that has all this knowledge. So we're in a really interesting position at the moment that we've got elders with a lot of knowledge that are still holding it. We're under time pressures because obviously, and COVID's accelerated that time pressure for us um, because if they do pass without passing, we lose that knowledge to a degree and we have to then use country and other protocols to, I guess, reignite it. But look, this stuff is everywhere. Um, for us in, I won't speak for Torres Strait Islanders because it, it's a little bit different, but for us as Aboriginal um, mob down here in Australia, it's we have a universal law, which is what's good for country is done first and what is good for us. So it's a concept of parking your own ego. It's a concept of I don't need to do something to keep myself alive, but if I look after country and do the right thing by her, then she will look after me. And it's this flow on effect of this chain. And we're starting to see this stuff come through rapidly. It's um, Australia two years ago, the East Coast was alight with fires because we've had bad fire management. And there's a Western perspective of fire that's fire is a really dangerous and scary thing. For us mob growing up, fire is just, you know, it's a tool that we use to manage country. There's, we've got about, in my family, we've got about 10 different types of fire that we use depending on seasons and everything. So it, it's really just, if you open a toolbox, that, that's how we see fire. It, it's amazing. It's a cultural thing. And we burn country to the point that you can walk barefoot behind it, like really amazing sort of techniques. And we're seeing that come through that, you know, um, Western systems have cleared land. They've liked monoculture. You know, they love property lines and all this sort of stuff and, and, you know, that sort of concept, whereas our cultural burns just create ecosystems. They create balance. They create, you know, fire for certain plants and species are good. You don't burn when um, certain birds are nesting and have young that can't fly. And to the point now we're seeing in, in Australia, especially on the East Coast, we're seeing, um, which... I won't claim as my own knowledge. It was a, a good uncle of mine who pointed it out to me because I was a little bit blind to see it, was we're seeing um, like our magpies, which are sweeping birds and stuff over in Australia, that their season starting earlier and earlier each year and this breeding season starting. And we all thought that it was actually climate change. We thought it was the summer was hot, too hot and we're getting longer summers. And what they said is, no, it's because our fire system's all wrong and New South Wales fires and everyone are lighting in spring, summer to get rid of the fuel loads for summer. We're also finding that um, the fires are so severe, they're actually having their young earlier so that they're actually able to fly away by the time the fire seasons are starting earlier and earlier each year. So we're watching this pattern and, yeah. and it's this interrelationship. And, and that's what we're really pushing people to understand is you can't fix one problem without causing another. So when we look at this, it's actually understanding the entire ecosystem and and that's where our community is coming to the forefront and we see that throughout all indigenous communities it's you know people want to come to us or how do we fix climate change or how do we fix fires or how do we fix this and we're, we're talking about a broad range and they're like no 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 we we only want to know this part and we're like you can't pick one without the other you know you can't have people's mental health without healthy country and you can't have healthy country without fire and water and and the right species you can't all this stuff is together. Like we can't separate those elements themselves anymore. Amen. 
As somebody who has spent my entire career working in sustainability and been enraged, frustrated, and regularly just like, ah, because people think that means just environmental things, it's such a relief to be able to talk about everything as interconnected, as holistic, as like, how can you expect somebody to have good mental health if they're living in a society which is completely unequal or in which they don't have opportunity or even being at the top of the food chain? How can you actually be whole in a society in which people are super oppressed because you are all connected? And just the ecosystem is so interesting to hear how how evolution works. You thought it was climate change, but actually it was man-made change and mating and the season of having their chicks because of how they were burning. That's so interesting. But what's interesting too is if from our perspective, every plant, every animal, every system, every river has its own laws in L-O-R-E. So they follow their own system. And it's as Aboriginal people, it's up for us to start learning a lot of that so we understand how it goes together. So the birds are following their own law. They're still practicing, but they're doing what we're not doing. They're adapting to their environment and responding appropriately rather than trying to control the environment. And this is where we sort of start talking to people going, this is where we're out of touch. It's because the birds aren't putting their ego ahead. They're saying, okay, this has changed. We need to follow the pattern and follow the plants that are seasoning it. They're flowering early. We need to follow this pattern continuously and follow our law, the most important one. So, yeah, it's sustainability is a huge one. And, yeah, I haven't seen it done really well yet because everyone's still trying to find that little tidbit of wisdom that they can go, that's it, that's the golden key for us. Yeah, complexity is really hard to make into a silver bullet. Absolutely. It's interesting what you said about nature doesn't have an ego, basically. You just, you adapt or you're going to die. And you don't think about, no, no, it should be this way because I've invested in this. So it has to work this way. Yeah, it is a bit back to front, isn't it? But my hope is that we're discovering that a bit more. We're still locked in systems that make it difficult to change and be more adaptable and more holistic, but yeah. Which actually, let's talk about tech because (laughs) you are somebody who understands the opportunities from tech. You know, it gives people access to jobs and access to connection. But also then there's the issue of, let's just say bias in tech, where tech is designed by a pretty narrow segment of society. And it was Tim who mentioned this. And I think you, you talked about this in your interview on his podcast about, I mean, Apple, didn't even have female biometrics in the Apple Watch until like, what, generation five or something, which is says a lot about who's designing tech and actually sort of, they just doesn't occur to them. So <laughs> what's the impact of bias on tech in Indigenous communities? Look, the impact's massive. Like the bias is everywhere around us. And look, I, I openly say this to people, we all have a bias and it's not about trying to necessarily eliminate those biases, but it's about addressing the elephant in the room and understanding your own and then making conscious decisions to act on it or not. And that's what we're talking about tech is, funnily enough, if people watching the video, I probably look like a lot of people in tech, but the difference is the way that I work is because culturally I've got a community or elders behind me that shape or smack me over the back of the head when I do the wrong thing. And that's appropriate. But what we have in tech is a lot of white male um, Eurocentric sort of versions of understanding of things, and that's limiting the capacity of technology. So it really renders Indigenous communities to be consumers. We, we end up with technology that doesn't suit us, 
but we have to engage and then we try to band-aid it across so <laughs> a funny version of this is I, I remember being in Cape York country and, and listening to this Arnie tell the story about how they all drive to the top of the hill because they're all on the latest iPhone but to send a message they've all got to they get the kids all lined up around the ute and they stand on top of the car and, and they press send and throw their phone as high as they can in the air and it's up to the kids to catch it before it hits the ground because that's their only way instead of you know and we're looking at them going we can probably create a network here like you know let's look at you know really low bandwidth we strap together some bootstrap (laughs) information here we could probably create you and they're like oh no but we need an iphone because we need to do this and we're sitting there going but that's the risk of bias that's really what happens and then what we're seeing with fitness app as well is they are once again i'm going to be nasty to myself they're designed for people like me the, you know, yeah. I've got a lighter skin tone, so a lot of the green light and purple light sensors go through my skin tone. They pick up my blood pressure and all that sort of stuff. We put that stuff into communities who have got darker skin. It's wrong. We look at that in terms of the data set. The data sets they're collecting on are majority Eurocentric Western people. So then when you put that into a, a uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander community or even Indigenous community anywhere, is the data right? Is a 40-year-old mm. Aboriginal person the same as a 40-year-old uh, non-Indigenous person in Australia or in America or anywhere? So, yeah. and that's where we're talking about this stuff, saying if we can bring those skills, the ability to use open source data and, and create and, and strap across this stuff, we really have the opportunity to build technology to work for what we want it to do rather than what it's already designed to do. It just, just so often comes down to it's the simple concept of representation. It seems so simple. And yet, why is it that tech is developed solely with that perspective? Because yeah, people are aware of their bias and they've undergone sensitivity training and taken bias tests. And there's a lot of work to make tech more inclusive. But why is it still missing the mark so much? Why? Is it that there's more money to be made by catering to the wealthy people who are white, Western, Eurocentric, who have the money on, to spend on tech? Is that it? What is it? it? It's an interesting question because I don't think it's a one thing. I think, one, the market at the moment is Eurocentric. That, that's the easy one. So if you market something today at Indigenous population, what's that really 5 10% max of the global market? Is that a marketing strategy you really want to go with? Probably not. But then... People just don't understand. So you talked about the Apple Watches and stuff, and it wasn't just Apple, it was everyone. So it was only, I think, about three or four years ago that someone had a light bulb moment and thought, oh, you know what, women use these devices as well. So why don't we start looking at sensors that can pick up menstruation rates and give people information? And and it was like this huge thing, and then all these companies jumped on it and they all put out all this advertising about how they'd reached the market. And we're all sitting there going, this conversation's been going on for about eight, nine years. Like you're not leading the conversation here. And I think it's the echo chamber effect. I honestly think that people, they're in rooms, technologies are silo sort of industry where you build your component, you don't see the whole, there's front end, there's back end, everyone's just plugging stuff in and then they're seeing a product. And no one really knows what the end product's going to be until you're getting towards it. So there's a whole range of problems there. But I think, and look, we've seen it even with um, what we call the Black Tech Project now, that which was designed off the 
the custodianship of technology. It's big companies and and um, in Australia and globally, like talking to companies, they're struggling with this concept because it's all about scale. Okay, if you guys come in now and you work with a hundred people and get this up, how quickly can you get to a thousand? We're like, it's not about getting to a thousand. It's about where do we take those hundred now? Like next year, if I walk off and do a thousand, great, that hits your number. But am I actually changing anything or am I just throwing knowledge at people and hoping that it sticks to the wall? And that's the challenge for a lot of companies is changing this mindset of saying, how do we actually have impact rather than scalability impact? And they're, they're two very, very, very different things. Um, and I, I see a lot of companies struggling with that. And I see a lot of people struggling with that because obviously the way this stuff works is horrendous. <laughs> you know, money money drives and if you're not moving forward and you're not scaling and you're not growing, then there must be something wrong. That's the mindset. And we really keep trying to pull this stuff back and just say, you know, it's not about that. It's about that impact. And and the example for this that I always use is there's um, an amazing Arnie in Cape York country that we had her in Sydney when we first launched this program and she didn't like computers, was not a fan. And then by the end of three days, she was asking these questions that was just gobsmacking. She wanted language and everything. And we worked with her through the program for 12 months. Within six months, she was talking to me about Python and C++ languages and coding. And, and I'm going, okay, like this is, it's triggered. And then it sort of went, and she's designing apps and building programs and she works on a cattle farm. Wow. Um, and she's now looking at, okay, we want to do automatic fence. And this is a remote community, mind you. And she's like, let's do an automatic fence. So I'm going to go get this guy to build a pressure plate. And then I'm going to automate the pressure plate that if it's over uh, 400 kilos, if something hits this plate, it'll open the gate, uh, but then close the gate behind because in the cattle, we can manage a whole cattle station by ourselves. And I'm just sitting there going, and this is from someone who didn't. And it's amazing to see that growth. And But what's the most powerful part of that story is, as an older, and she'll slap me if she hears this, so hopefully she won't. But <laughs> as an older, we'll aunt, edit it out if needed. <laughs> as an older aunt, she was under that pressure that she was actually having to take work that was offered to her. And then after twelve months, she's actually now in a position that she said something to me, and I just, I almost started crying to be honest with you. She's just like, I've been offered four jobs, and you know what? I'm negotiating my pay, and I'm not taking three of them because they're not doing the right thing. And she wow. goes, this is the first time in my life at an older age, she's gone, I've been in a position to say no, or if you want me to come, these are the conditions. And that change, and that's what we mean, that that change is just amazing because no longer does she have to fit in with the technology, she's actually changing the technology to make it work for them. And that's wow. that's what we're talking about. It's sort of the advantage of not having been a digital native. When you encounter the tech, you think, okay, how can I make this work for me? Rather than thinking, how does the tech work? And then how can I make it work for me? That's incredible. So, I mean, there's such a clear digital divide, but where I think you are so inspiring in your work, but also the stories that you've got to hand is the opportunities and the impact and the empowerment that technology has been bringing to Indigenous communities who are adapting it and learning to code and using it for their own ends. So what are what are some more of those things? I mean, we're talking about like language preservation and yeah. remote access to jobs. Like I'm about to hire a new podcast manager who's in Nairobi. Yay, technology. <laughs> I'm sitting in Barcelona, Spain. I'm going to be working with somebody in Nairobi. And, you know, my social media person's in Sweden. 
but it's, yeah, just talk about what has tech brought that you never would have dreamed of? The big one I have, and we haven't quite, look, <laughs> we haven't even scratched the surface, I'll put it that way, is we're looking at, in Australia, we're, we're looking to satellite communities. And, and some of the work we're doing now is going really a lot further back. And the role that I'm moving into is around literacy and, and bringing that stuff in to unlock because it's just the pathway. And what we'd love to do with this stuff is satellite our communities together to create an Australia-wide network so that we've got East Coast working with West Coast so that we can start once again building this digital sovereignty that we had physically so that our systems can talk to each other. If we're looking at blockchains and, and data, we can start building data to help each other going forward. But what we really want to do, and, and I got in trouble with this <laughs> over at the UN and, and talking to communities over there, and I just, and a guy I mentioned to you earlier, Brandon from Hawaii, and you know, that's nation of Hawaii, and some of the guys we met in, um, in Kenya and everything, like just amazing. And you're sitting there going, everyone's building, everyone's doing this stuff, but no one's looking outward at the moment. We're all inward. And we're sort of sitting there going, imagine having this this global digital community that we're all pulling together. And it's sort of catalyst for this idea was we're, we're sitting at the UN on the forum and I was talking to the guys from the nation of Hawaii and they're like, you know, we're planning this, you know, you've got to get petitions in to get on the microphone. You've got, I forget off the top of my head, I think it's a couple of minutes to talk and you've got to be on pitch and they go, so we align it. We've got multiple speakers lined up so we can do this and they've got someone at the desk doing this and then people lined up. And if you go to the toilet at the wrong time or go off, you miss your speaking role. So people spend a lot of money to get to New York to be there for this two weeks, to be on that floor for a couple of minutes. And and I sort of said to them, I said, how amazing would this be is, you know, we're, we're in a world with climate change. We're flying from everywhere all over the world to come to New York City, a massive city. Like we're here talking about climate change and we're all contributing to it. And I said to him, you know, just picture this, that you're on your own country. You're talking, you've got your connection to country with you, that sense of strength. And then you digitally walk into the UN on the floor at that moment to have the talk. And then you can augment your whole community behind you to populate the room and share that message. And he oh, sort God. of, yeah, he looked at me and went that, and I said, this is what we're talking about. And I said, not only that, Nation of Hawaii is talking about water or environment or whatever we're talking about right now. I've got communities over here that are under pressure with water and, and not getting access to fresh water. In America, we've got the same thing going on. What if we bring all those together that instead of having a three-minute piece where you talk, we can have a 40, 50-minute piece where we all just line it up and talk together? We just effortlessly go through this thing. And that's where we sort of see technology coming through now. So the opportunity exists, but the barriers are still many. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, UN, the UN was not, the organisers there were, were not a fan of that idea because there was all this tech, oh, you know, how do we protect it and cyber? And, and we're just in the game. It's very easy to hit this stuff on the head with what could go wrong instead of, you know, what about the communities that can't raise 10,000 US to get here? Where's yeah. their voice in all this sort of stuff? Or yeah. where's the nations that have to go to, where I know in Australia, they have to petition the Australian government to get funding to get their person there. At what point does that money influence what they're going to say or what mm. they can say? So, mm. you know, allowing people to break their barriers to do this stuff, technology can do. 
we can create global networks and do this stuff really, really quickly and share information and start working together. Well, and the UN has only just reconvened the General Assembly. So do you think that this whole pandemic, having to figure out how to do things remotely, digitally, online, is going to knock a lot of those previous objections on the head about security and blah. They've done it. They've proven that it can be done. So how can we ride the wave on the back of this and be like, because I refuse to travel for work now. I'm like, I will speak remotely. I will be online, but I'm not flying. I'm not getting on an airplane to come to you if at all possible. So like, how do we, how do we push on the back of that to do what you need to do to bring together these indigenous communities and network them and because what a powerful thing to be able to put on the same platform communities who've never, ever been represented before because they're too remote or they just have a different concept of currency. So they're never going to have the money to get there. Like, how can we ride the COVID wave? Do you have a vision for this? Look, I think there's twofold. COVID's globally challenged a lot of systems and it showed a lot of weaknesses to a lot of things we've taken as the norm. And... I honestly hope that it's we don't fall into this trap. So in Australia, looking at the business world, we've had this conversation around diversity and, you know, women in the workplace, but women will go off and have kids. How can we engage that? How can we be a family friendly? How can we go to part time and work from home? How do we know everyone's going to work? COVID just smashed that out of the water. The arguments were gone. You couldn't come in. Suddenly people are more productive and doing more work. It's people, you know, myself, as you can see, I've got a toy kitchen in the background. My kids hopefully won't come in, but it's that sense of apologizing for kids being in a workplace is gone now. So what we're saying mm. is that that is a purposeful tactic. If we go back to the norm, companies are making a, a stance to say, well, let's, you know, we don't want to accept this and we're going to go back, which then goes against all their work for the last 10 years around diversity and inclusion and everything. So that's the one piece there. Mm. The flip side of this is technology is not a replacement. And that's what we really want to focus on is, you know, I'm in a position where I haven't seen my mother um, for a long time because of COVID and, and she's got health issues. Mm. So we, we've tried to protect that. And I've got aunties and uncles and, and community people. I can't get out. We've had deaths in community that we would normally have. Sorry, business. We can't get out and support them. And, you know, we can have a Zoom funeral. It's not the same. Technology never is going to replace that human contact. And that's where we really need to focus the energy is understanding technology is a tool, but it shouldn't be the thing that does everything. And even in our communities, we say this technology shouldn't replace culture, shouldn't replace being on country, it shouldn't replace the elder, it shouldn't replace anything, but it's a way for us to um, allow people to communicate or do that. So a, a lot of the time on country, we have our elder who will walk us through country and you're feeling you're experiencing country, but how do we then take that day or that week of learning and then bring it back with us? technology has the ability to engage us we can do immersive learning through vr or augmented learning or all those things or gameplay where we can walk through country and experience it again and, and reflect on our learning but it's never going to replace that on country yeah. so that's the challenge for this stuff is yes of course we can zoom into the un and we can talk but how many people are going to be listening because how many people are going to have their microphones off and gone so mm. and, and that's but those are the conversations we've got to have it's we need to do this stuff better. Is the access yeah. more important than the engagement or 
engagement more important than the access or how do we do that? How do we make sure that people can actually ring in? Because that's the other one. And look, we had this in Australia too. The perfect example is uh, we rent to a telehealth model. Couldn't see a doctor, so you had to ring in and, and they'd do it over the mm. phone. In remote communities, the only place in some of these communities that has good mobile and phone reception is right next to the courthouse and, and the police area, which <laughs> then meant that people all had to gather in one spot, which is not necessarily the best spot for them to be at, to have phone calls, but then because everyone in the community is there, how can you have a private conversation with your doctor when you've got all your aunties and uncles and siblings around you? And then people are going, oh, but we've got to do it. And you're going, yeah, but that's an infrastructure. Get in there and build a tower network so that people can actually ring from their home. That's your solution. And that's what we're talking about. So even if you overlay that into the UN, if you've got someone sitting under a tree in 40 degree heat with a computer trying to you know, zoom into the UN, is that appropriate? Or, you know, is there someone overlooking and, and affecting that or able just to flick off the mm. Wi-Fi for saying the wrong thing, you know? It's a really good point about not seeking to replace all experience with online ones, which actually then brings me to questions about what is technology good for in terms of like cultural preservation and, you know, how do you use it to capture the wisdom of your elders and how do you use it to preserve language and and I think this is probably relevant to a lot of different Indigenous peoples, but how have you particularly seen technology be useful for cultural preservation in particular? I think technology is, is a double-edged sword for us. So, you know, at one spectrum, we've got our elders who are the knowledge keepers, and then we've got our young people who will pick up technology like nothing else. And it's engaging, it's distracting, all those great things about it. And there's a big gap between them at the moment. But what we see technology being is it could be the bridge between these generations so at the moment our kids are getting this message as, as i said earlier that to be successful they need to leave technology is allowing them to bring the outside into a degree but with the elders involved in those conversations and shaping that thought it comes in in the way they want so we've seen language revitalization comes through and and another mistake i, I stumbled upon admittedly hand on heart I, I just didn't think and i was naive and all those wonderful things that we do i was in the un obviously you have your interpreters you know sharing your message in multiple languages and i got to a room with 40 people from around the world and forgot the book interpreters and went like what am i going to do and just like the way my brain works is okay i've got a problem let's fix this like i've got to fix and you know, there's free software out there and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not plugging Microsoft as the be all or end all. But at that time, I was standing in the Microsoft building running this workshop and I went, you know what, I know there's a translator tool and I ran it on my PowerPoints, which gives people a QR code, which translated everything. So not only, and it ended up working well because what it did is it allowed people not to just have French and um, I think Spanish was the two options most of the interpreters did it actually allowed me to do it in over 100 languages. So then suddenly we actually had a better model and we only, it was a free model and, and you know, saved Birth my... Birth out of forgetfulness to book translators. Good job, man, that worked yeah, out. Yeah, I know, you. but it, it, it's, hmm. it's those sort of things. And what we're looking at is going, you know, we've got none of that for our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander languages. There's nothing. And we're looking at that stuff going, but the way systems work is we've got universities over here and governments trying to get access to all this stuff and then do it for people. But we're sitting there saying, we want to get our elders teaching the young people and they can build this stuff together and then they can sell that license to a Google or a 
Microsoft and then create this passive income because language for us is very, very different to, or English and stuff like that, that, you know, English want us to have one word for dog. We don't. And, you know, we've got, do you know a dugong? Do you have those? No. You don't know a dugong? So uh, manatee for America, they're called. Uh, we, okay. we, we've got a dugong, but we've got in certain cultures, we've got about six different words to it, whether it's a female, male, whether it's pregnant, whether it's milking, whether it's got young, that it changes the way we interact in it and the way that that animal's interacting in the environment. So uh, to expect us to have one word for that is ridiculous. And in the end, we always go, oh, look, just take whatever one you can pronounce and go with it. We don't want to do that. We want to have that rich context because language is driven by country and what's good for country is good for us. So we want to have those six words come through and people use them appropriately and do that because that's what we need to do to manage country. So we're looking at this stuff going, technology wants to streamline and push forward with the simplest solution. We want to bring and change that model of saying, we want technology to be the platform that allows us to continue culture into the future because at the end of the day, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been on this land for, look, minimum 80,000 years, arguably longer than that when we talk about this sort of stuff. And when we look at it, it's one of the oldest societies that worked across nations and languages and, and everything together. There's a whole bunch of innovation that's kept us alive and thriving throughout ice ages and meteorite strikes and sea level changes, that mm. all that innovation's there. We're not a static population that had one thing that we just managed to survive in a window. We've thrived throughout many. And that's what we talk about going. Technology is this next fourth industrial revolution is this new window that we can bring that knowledge and, and bring it forward to manage climate change, to manage sea levels, to manage all this sort of stuff. But how do we do it appropriately is going to be a challenge. That's inspiring because you do just 80,000 years of heritage, probably longer. And that nature is so diverse and complex. And the answer to using technology to solve all these complex, tricky issues that we're facing right now as humankind is not to simplify, it's to actually be able to grapple with the complexity and let it be complex. Oh, that's a really great example. I love that about language as a great illustrator of how complex we need to allow things to still be because they are complex. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. I want to ask about your indigenous success model because it's about reflecting, inspiring and growing. Explain that because I'm dying to know. It's based off a concept. You know, I I will openly say this. Me as an individual is pretty boring. I There's not many things in my life that I could say that I've achieved by myself. And, and, you know, that's coming from a sense of, you know, I've been an elite athlete of a couple of different sports. I've raced around the world. I've represented Australia at, at world champ. Like I, I've had success in my life, but honestly, that doesn't come without family and community and everyone picking up the pieces, allowing me to focus on what I can do, you know, giving me a slap over the head when I need that, you know, tough love and all that sort of stuff comes together. And and the roles we even do now, it's it's amazing that as a younger guy, like I'm, I don't feel old and I don't feel young, don't get me wrong, but as a younger person sitting in roles where I, I, I find myself now sitting on panels with elders that were elders when I was growing up, like they're my aunties and uncles and, you know, I knew them when I was knee height to them and now I'm sitting next to them at a table. 
it's understanding that they're always there. That's what's going on. And going into this model, that's the, the reflection in the Inspire model because I'd look at our elders and our communities and just say, like, we've done amazing things. Like, we're constantly here. We've survived. We've done all this. We, we know the answers. It's all here, but how do we start unlocking and piecing this stuff together and, and, and inspiring that next leg? And we're really at an interesting point, and I think it's globally. The, our old people have fought for so many human rights and just to be counted and seen. We're in a lucky position now. We're not necessarily fighting on that front. We're fighting for the next representation or the next responsibility, and, and that's where we're coming through now. So that's where this model comes together. But really what it's all about is let's not run ahead with our flags and tell people to catch up with us down the road here. It's about how do we bring everyone with us now, That how do we inspire that new movement to sit there and say, let's bring technology in, but on our terms and not the terms of myself, but elders. So it's a really hard, slow conversation to have. And it's an amazing conversation to have because we get elders that will refuse. They won't even use a mobile phone. They won't use technology at all, but they understand it. They get it. And they'll sit there and tell you the place for that is here. This is how we do it. Or they'll give us a word where they'll go, what you're talking about. And they'll give us the language word for it and say, we've always done this. This is just the new way of looking at this. And they just embed it that it's such a core principle that at the end of the day, we love the fact that we're not in a room talking about technology as the center. We're talking about culture. We're talking about seasons. We're talking about climate. We're talking about our custodian roles and the technology is almost forgotten. And it's just something that just taps up and brings through the process. In service to us rather than the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a beautiful model of remembering that you come from deep roots, you come from somewhere, you come from your elders, and they hold real wisdom. Because I think, you know, I am a city dweller who lives on another continent from my family, and in a culture that's not my native one. So it's easy to feel quite removed from, and I say this to anybody who's an urbanite or doesn't live near their family or where they came from, it's so easy to feel disconnected that I think that's a really beautiful thing that you've brought to this conversation, but also to my awareness of just remembering my own ancestors and elders, because it's something that I occasionally do when I sort of sit in meditation and feel my ancestors behind me, cheering me on. But we all have that. And we all come from somewhere. We all come from family and ancestors, and we're all connected to the land if we let ourselves remember that. So what would be, because we need to wrap this up, I'm, I'm sad to say, but I'm definitely getting you back on the podcast. If you had to leave listeners with just one, one thing to feel inspired about or to just keep thinking about after listening to this, what might it be? It's a very big question to finish off on. I would love people just to see the value. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are, are really seen through a deficit lens, like all the stuff that we're perceived not to be able to do. And I'd love people just to acknowledge their bias on this and come to us with a new lens. Just come with us with an open mind and see the opportunity, see the amazingness. And and it's something we, we honestly say to people that, um, to put it into your context, it's we've got communities up in the Northern Territory that, at, and I remember taking corporates up there a long time ago and they were horrified that it, two o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, the whole community sitting on the western side of the street under an awning on the main street. 
and you know what are they doing here you know or you know the usual rumblings and and we sort of sat there and i went you know what if you're in spain or italy or whatever else at one o'clock in the afternoon no one's open everyone's gone home for a fancy little it's exactly what we do whatever you want to call it and i said and over there you'd love it you Mm, embrace it i said classic old world yeah and the difference is here is the infrastructure you've given the community here is cinder brick. It's hot. It's in the sun. There's no airflow. It's too hot to stay in. So if it's 40 degrees outside, it's probably 60 degrees inside. So they're making the best of their situation and they're being a community. They're all here together. And I, and I sort of throw it back to them and go, imagine the ability for you to be with your grandparents and your siblings and your young and your nieces and nephews all in the one place that daily you get to spend time with them not talking about work but talking about being that's our community so see past your deficit and your bias and just see us for who we are and the opportunities and the power that our communities have ah beautiful answer ben i really threw you in that one and you (laughs) took it you swam with it you made it into something beautiful yeah, I love that. I think that's a really beautiful way to end. I'm not even going to bother adding to that because I can't possibly. But I, I've i learned a lot. You've made me think a lot. And it's always just, mm, not always, it's not always a pleasure to be challenged to think differently and to take a different perspective. But it's really useful. And I've enjoyed this particular opportunity to see things from a different lens. So thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing in the world. And, and thank you for who you are. Thank you very much. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.